When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I have to be realistic with myself. It's difficult to win a case like this. On the 14th of November, 2017, the world's battle with climate change is being brought into the courtroom. Standing in the dock will be the Norwegian government, which recently opened up new areas of the Arctic for oil drilling, further north than ever before. This is one that affects not only locally, but, but globally. By having this case. We have actually already managed to create a, a debate where people are actually holding politicians accountable. On the other side of the court would be the people who brought them there. A global alliance of environmentalists, scientists and indigenous people. At the heart of this case is one simple question. Can the planet afford to drill for Arctic oil? This isn't just Norway's fight. It's all of ours. And this winter, from within the four walls of the Oslo District Court, will come a verdict that will echo around the world. Let's go back four years and 10,000 kilometers from Oslo. Okay, so I'm Joanna Sustenta. I'm from Taklaban City, Philippines. I'm a writer, a storyteller, and I'd like to start with how we have different relationships with the ocean. I think I, I, I can say that the ocean is my favorite thing about the Philippines because it's beautiful and I have so many treasured memories with my family and my friends. All of that is because of the ocean. My father was a lawyer, while my mother was a manager of a government bank. I had two older brothers, Jonas and Julius. Jonas married Jeo, and they had a son named Taryn. And then there's me, the youngest and the only girl in the family. So my parents often called me princess. And little did I know that years later, I would terribly miss being called princess. News of a typhoon came through to the Philippines a week before it was due to hit land. This in itself was nothing out of the ordinary. Between 10 and 20 of these storms make landfall every year. I love typhoon season. I would get excited because I get to spend time at home. Classes are suspended, no work. I would just stay at home with my family. As the typhoon approached, Joanna and her family just went about their normal preparations. We didn't really worry too much about it. What we did was just, we stayed at home and we stored food, thinking that in the next few days, things will be normal again. At that time, 
my family was already awake at around 5 a.m. So we had breakfast together and all of us just waited for it to be over. I heard a very eerie sound. It was as if a monster was coming out from the skies. I opened our screen door to feel what the wind was like, and its intensity was so strong. My lips were being blown away as I was speaking. I felt water dripping from the ceiling. And that's when I saw that water was already coming inside the house from the kitchen door. In just a matter of seconds, the water rose up to knee level. We all decided to go out of the house because if not, we would be trapped inside. We were all holding on to the window grills, trying not to panic. My brother Jonas saw a life jacket and an icebox floating, so he told my brother Julius to get it. He swam for it, got the life jacket, and placed it on Taryn. It was then when we got separated from each other. From that time, I just saw my sister-in-law floating away, holding on to a tree branch, and I saw Taryn floating as well. My brother Jonas was calling out to his wife. He was screaming for her to grab Taryn. I focused myself on saving my parents. It's normal for a daughter to think of parents as heroes. I forgot that they were humans as well. At that time, all I thought about was how are my parents feeling that they are witnessing their family being torn apart? How were they feeling when, when they could possibly think even they could not protect us from that devastation? I saw my father drown in the deluge of Haiyan, and I could not do anything about it. My mom and I were swept away by the current, and I saw a refrigerator floating, so I held onto it and let my mom hold it as well. The waves were crashing onto the refrigerator we were holding. I was being pushed under the steel trusses of the building. I felt like I was being spun inside a washing machine, and I seriously thought I was going to die. Never in my life have I talked to God with deep remorse and in complete surrender. However, death decided to postpone. As soon as I saw my mom, I immediately drifted towards her, grabbed her arms and tried to lift half of her body. But when my hand slipped from her arms to her fingers, her body splashed into the water, and there was no sign of her struggling to survive. My mom was gone. 
I wanted to hold on to my mom's body. But the current was so strong. If I continue to hold on to her, I know that I would also die. But if I let her go, will I be able to live with that decision? When a person dies, the last sense to vanish is the sense of hearing. Thus, with all the love that I had, I asked for my mom's forgiveness for everything I did that hurt her. I thanked her for being the strong woman that she is and for everything she has done for me, for her family. I told her I loved her again and again. I embraced and kissed her for the last time. And that was it. I let her go and I never looked back. Hayan displaced millions and claimed thousands of lives. Five of those are my parents, my eldest brother, my sister-in-law, and my three-year-old nephew, leaving only me and my older brother as survivors. November 2013, Typhoon Haiyan becomes the strongest storm on record to ever hit land in any part of the world. The initial assessment showed that Haiyan left a wake of massive destruction that is unprecedented, unthinkable, and horrific, and the devastation is staggering. Wind speeds of over 300 kilometers per hour created a wall of water called a storm surge, which reached up to 25 feet in some areas. There was little the Philippines could do to prepare. Whilst this was happening, Filipino representative Yeb Sanyo made a speech at the UN's climate meeting in Warsaw, Poland. However, I feel about the losses. Up to this hour, I agonize, waiting for word to the fate of my very own relatives. He pleaded with those assembled to take drastic action. Can we ever attain the ultimate objective of the convention, which is to prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system? By failing to meet the objective of the convention, me, we may have ratified our own doom. My life has changed drastically since Haiyan. I choose to say that it changed for the better. Because even if I experienced a great loss, I could say that I have gained more. I have gained strength beyond my years. And it is just awe-inspiring to know I could love this much. And I think if it weren't for Haiyan, well, it's sad that it took a devastating storm as Haiyan for me to realize these things. I am grateful that I was able to, to learn a lot from that experience. Not only for myself, but for the people around me. It is through my greatest loss that I have found my purpose, which is to tell my family and my community's story. These stories are all that I have and all that I am.
ever since I was in elementary, I've already known that the term climate change exists. The Philippines is an archipelago, an island nation, and surrounded by the Pacific Ocean. That's what makes the Philippines one of the most vulnerable countries to the impacts of climate change. When Haiyan spread its fury and we were stripped of all that we had and everything that we were, it made us realize that the long-standing issue of climate change poses a major threat and has a price to pay, and it is not a small one. Climate change is not just statistics and numbers. It is already about us, the people. The eyes of the world have long moved on from the Philippines. Tonight, the forecast is urgent this is a very, and distressing. very bad scenario for us. Stranded, taken by boat and helicopter. To the next record breaking storm, the next heat wave, the next drought, the next flood. While this series was being made, Hurricane Harvey hit the southern United States, submerging Houston in its third 500-year flood in three years. We haven't seen a storm like this ever uh, when it comes to all of the threats that we're going to be dealing with. I was just like screaming. Followed by Hurricane Irma. Tonight throughout South Florida, chaos. Hurricane Irma shredding Fort Myers. And, and Hurricane Maria. The first pictures now coming in from Puerto Rico. Hurricane Maria is strengthening rapidly. I can actually see a tree snap in half. Anyone and South Asia was seeing the worst monsoon in decades. Bihar State has been underwater for much of August. Communities have been cut Sure, typhoons and monsoons have always happened. Every year like clockwork. But what matters here is how frequently we're seeing these severe events. Is extreme weather starting to become just weather? Climate change is real. If our ears could glaze over, they probably would have a long time ago. We all know the drill at this stage. Well, almost all of us. They say I think it's a big scam for a lot of people to make a lot of money. I want to be able to be self-sufficient for the country. Now we've been aware that man has created climate change for a long time. Were the winters really colder when grandfather was a boy than they are now? Does industrial activity have any influence on climate? We live we burn, we pump out carbon dioxide, we warm up the planet. How is the climate in this country really changing? Yes, and not only in this country. This though. was made by General Electric in the 1950s. There are many lines of evidence which show that the climate has slowly been warming up during the 20th century over almost the entire Earth's surface. What is this? A lobster put straight into a pot of boiling water will immediately try to get out. But if you instead put him into cold water, and slowly bring the pot to the boil, he will just sit there and cook. We are the lobster in the pot. The water is heating up. So what do we do? Do we argue over precisely how fast or how slowly we're going to cook? Or do we just try to get out of the pot? Recently, it seemed like we'd actually made our minds up on this. It really started to feel like we were doing something about it. It really felt like we were going somewhere. 
Converting to solar power has never been easier, more affordable. So the interest in electric and hybrid cars is on the rise. We'll no longer be able to sell old-style incandescent. India is moving in rapidly high in terms of increasing the production of non-fossil fuel-based energy. Gather in Morocco, we can take a look now at how Singapore. Players in the renewable energy sector gathered in Johannesburg to discuss ways of best harnessing the country's resources. And then, in Paris, in the winter of 2015. The leaders of almost every nation on earth came together and did something pretty remarkable. Ten months ago in Paris, I said that we needed a strong global agreement. China and the United States, the world's top producers of They agreed. The result was the Paris Agreement. Here's the deal. Though it sounds very grand and complicated, the Paris Agreement was actually just a fancy politics way of saying something really, really simple. If we don't want our home to become too hot and dangerous for us to live, then we just need to stop making it hotter. And with a little bit of technicality, the Paris Agreement said, let's not make the world more than two degrees warmer than it was before the Industrial Age kicked off about 200 years ago. And with our best efforts, let's strive to keep below 1.5 degrees. Right now, we've warmed up by about 1 degree. And everything we're currently digging up is already enough to push us beyond that 2 degree limit. So finally, we had an agreement. No more drilling for new oil fields. No more new coal mines. No more poking around for anything else. Just no more. Everything that would come from these new fields, we couldn't burn anyway. It would be unburnable carbon. Let's just relax, breathe deeply, and use the oil we found already to switch our economies to run on 100% clean, renewable energy. All each country needed to do now was just stick to that plan. Of all the countries leading the charge into this bright green future, Norway stood out in particular, an oil-rich Scandinavian nation which has used its wealth to become the world's poster boy of sustainability. The Paris Agreement is key to a global solution on climate change. And on the 20th of June 2016, after encouraging the world to be, and I quote, ambitious in tackling climate change, success will depend on the strength of our political leadership. Norway became the first developed country to ratify the Paris Agreement. And I urge countries that have not yet ratified the agreement to do so as quickly as possible. However, 10 days earlier, the Norwegian government also decided to do something else. We were watching the live transmission on a, on a big screen in the office. That's Truls Gullivsen, head of Greenpeace Norway. I couldn't believe it, that he actually did it. For the first time in more than 20 years, the government of Norway decided the time was right to open up new areas of the Arctic for oil drilling. We had heard that they were going to award these licenses on the 18th of May in 2016. Norwegian Constitution Day is the day before. That's Norwegian environmental campaigner Ingrid Schuldevier. And they were going to do this, of course, they were going to do it in northern Norway, in Hammerfest, which is really far north, and the oil capital in Norway. So we flew up there and we were like three people with a small banner standing outside of the house where they were 
giving out Orleans disease, and it was like the Orleans energy minister, the head of the Petroleum Association in Norway, and it was just like all these men in black suits and us. Ingrid is head of Natur og Ungdom, or Nature and Youth, the largest environmental organization for young people in Norway. I think we stood out. And they just like said that this is totally fine, natural way to proceed in the Norwegian oil adventure. And they saw no problem with doing that. I guess that's the problem with the oil policy making in Norway is that no one really has any space to confront them or to ask questions. It's just like, oh, this is a natural way forward. The 23rd licensing round, as it was officially called, handed out 10 new production licenses to 13 petroleum companies, including Statoil, Norway's state-owned oil company. We knew that government was going to award licenses. It has been talked about for a long time. We complained about the decision. There are several steps and we complained all the way. Solong announced that the 23rd round will be a big Arctic round further north and further east than any time before. It's the first oil licensing after Norway signed the Paris Agreement and agreed to do as much as we could together with the rest of the world. We could sign the Paris Agreement, but the bureaucrats working in the oil and energy department, they wouldn't consider that climate isn't really mentioned. If this happens, that's the moment that will sort of decide whether Norway is taking climate change seriously. We handed out so many bad licenses and all of them basically in violation of the recommendations even from the state environmental agencies. By being so aggressive, they have made it more challengeable. This is the decision by the government that we will challenge. This is the battle. When mulling over whether or not to pick a fight with your own government, who is pretty much the biggest kid on the playground, one thing you definitely need is a shiny new weapon. Something they're just not expecting. For Ingrid and Trulls, the weapon they needed had unwittingly been handed to them by the government itself a few years earlier. In 2014, we got a new gift from the parliament and the politicians, and I'm not sure if they knew what sort of gift they were giving us. That gift was called Article 112, formerly known as the wimpy little section 110B. Some smart people had seen that the environmental paragraph that we've had in our constitution had not been used for anything meaningful since it was developed since 92, and they wanted to give it a bit more power. Article 112. Every person has the right to an environment that is conducive to health and to a natural environment whose productivity and diversity are maintained. Natural resources shall be managed on the basis of comprehensive long-term considerations, which will safeguard this right for future generations as well. The authorities of the state shall take measures for the implementation of these principles. What made Article 112 so much more powerful than its predecessor was a very small change indeed. Just five letters, in fact. 
They strengthen it with a small word that the government or the state shall take measures ensure these rights. According to lots of legal experts, it changed from a general statement to a legal paragraph that has real teeth to protect the environment. And there it was. One word. Shall. That one word made all the difference. For environmentalists in Norway, it meant that the government could no longer just talk about protecting the environment. Now the government really had to do it. Suddenly we got a new tool that we hadn't had before. Uh, we had an environmental paragraph in the highest level of the law. I hadn't regarded it as a possibility at all. With Article 112 in hand, Greenpeace and Nature and Youth sat down with a number of high-ranking Norwegian lawyers to figure out exactly how they could use this newfound tool. However, when the 23rd licensing round came along, it became clear what they had to do. So now we're taking the Norwegian government to court. They have breached the environmental paragraph in the constitution by handing out new licenses for oil and gas in the Arctic after they signed the Paris Agreement. That's unacceptable. Our nerds at the office were a bit skeptical to some extent because this is a totally different new way of approaching environmental influence making in Norway. But I have never seen such a, like, a big interest from the local groups and from the younger people in the organization. And they were like, you have to do this. You really have to do this. So we decided that we're going to be co-plaintiffs in the lawsuits. This might sound like an isolated case. Two environmental groups in Norway squaring up to their own government. But it's actually already started to happen all over the world. In 2015, citizens in the Netherlands took their government to court and won. In the United States, Youth Movement, or Children's Trust, is doing the same. When all we wanted was leadership on climate, we get to go all over the world and say, we're suing Trump. In Switzerland. To tell to the world leaders that they have to do what they promise. In the Philippines. If you look at the fossil fuel industry and just the systems that we live in, they make us feel powerless and they say it's everyone's fault. What's happening in Norway is neither the first nor the last time we will see climate change in the courtroom. It's a rush when you can feel that sort of everything comes in and you can still just sort of deal with it. Kind of phone calls here, comments there, updates there, preparing for TV debate there. We get invited like, to talk all across the country about this uh, court case. And it just happens. And after, after that day, you feel completely empty. And at least I need to pull myself a bit up to continue working until sort of the next level of excitement can hit. So sometimes you sort of live from the adrenaline that these sort of moments create. Uh, we have managed to uh, gather a half million kroners to expenses related with the case from more than a thousand different people has <laughs> donated, which I think is a, it's a big sign that this is something that people want as well. And then, finally, the case was officially filed on October the 18th, 2016. 
The filing day last year was an almost unreal day. It was sort of the combination of all the logistics that had to work out. We were quite a crowd standing on the stairs of the courtroom in Oslo. It was me and it was Truls. And I'm here today as a philosopher. Famous Norwegian writer. Show my support for this Jostan Gorder, the author of Sophie's World. And James Hansen was there. Thank you for inviting me to be here. The Fascinating man to uh, to meet, sort of one of the founding fathers of, of uh, modern climate change science, came to Oslo just to just to support his case. And there's more warming already in the pipeline. Indigenous people were there, yeah. So that was us. And after that, we like we went down to to have like a press conference, which was uh, which was a bit terrifying. Speaking to the audience and saying, you know, we are suing the Norwegian state was almost unreal after all the work with this idea that suddenly was real. The thing I think is cool about the lawsuits is that we had tried to influence policymaking on oil in Norway for nearly 30 years. We are always not the one leading that policymaking. We just like wait for the authorities' next step, and we react on that. We wait for them to give out news licenses, and we react on that. But like in November, the government actually has to meet us in court, and we are the one who are taking them there. Article 112 has never actually been tested in court before, and so the government's official response to all this was to say, this is not an issue suitable for juridification based on a brief and general wording of a constitutional provision which was formulated without this in mind. Basically, you can't use this law against us. But behind this unprecedented case lies some of the best legal minds in both Norway and the world. This case does not concern only Norwegian law or Norwegian oil industry. It concerns how the future will look for our children and their children again. I think everybody agrees that Norway isn't in a position to save the world. Norway has to do its part. And it's important for other countries to see that Norway does exactly that. From former Supreme Court attorneys... The conflict of interest between the generations of today and the generations of tomorrow, that is the basic issue. To renowned international human rights lawyers. The longer we delude ourselves into thinking, well, we don't have to change this year, no. It really has to start now. It is a a huge amount of pressure to be involved in this case because the stakes are so high. But everyone around me is so motivated and it's working so hard. I guess you just draw your energy and your faith, I guess, from, from that. The court date is set for Tuesday, November the 14th, 2017. But with Statoil and the Norwegian government determined to commence drilling despite the legal dispute, the months leading up to the case will be anything but quiet. It's hard to accept that a government of a rich state such as Norway is pursuing short-term profit over people's lives. And how many more lives will it take for these powerful countries to realize that what they're doing is only for short-term gain. July 21st, 2017. Joanna joins other campaigners from around the globe aboard Greenpeace ship, the Arctic Sunrise. I want 
people from all over the world to realize that climate change and its impacts knows no jurisdiction. It affects us all. It is here they confront the Sangha Enabler, a Statoil exploration rig stationed at Gemini North, one of the new fields opened up for drilling in the 23rd licensing round. So right now we are circling around the oil rig. We keep a minimum distance of 500 meters. And then we have our uh, inflatables in the water with our activists in, together with Lucy Lawless and Joanna Sustentio. I have this immersion suit with me. It's on really tight, so there won't be any risk of uh, water coming inside. And it's to protect me from the cold. We can see the drill rig uh, in the in the quite the near distance, and they can certainly see us. So we'll be waiting for a little bit of an interface with them. Right now, I'm actually looking at the monster. So feel very determined to do this today. For those committed to the fight, this journey will take them from the icy waters of the Arctic to the scrutiny of the courtroom. And with the eyes of the world on Norway, this story is just beginning. Arctic Sunrise, this is the Songhai neighbor just speaking to the captain. Good evening. Good evening, captain. As you know, we've been protesting your presence. So just before we launch, we do uh, what we will call like a courtesy call, um, basically just informing the rig about our intentions. Continuing further north will not only jeopardize the Arctic environment, but our global climate too. And we cannot stand by and let that happen. Do you read me? Uh, good evening again. Uh, I do read you. Um, I recognize your opinion and your right to protest. Um, however, we are engaged in a legal activity approved by the Norwegian government and uh, I have no further comment at this time. If you've enjoyed listening to Unburnable and feel that this is a story that should be heard, please share online and rate this episode on iTunes. It really helps. And if you want to find out more about what you can do to support the court case, please visit savethearctic.org forward slash unburnable. This episode was brought to you by the team at Radio Wolfgang. It featured Joanna Sustento, Trulls Gullifson, Ingrid Schuldeweyer, Beshka Nelias, Paul Lawrenson, Katrina Hambro, Emmanuel Feinberg, Michelle Yonker Argueta, Richard Harvey, Suna Scheller, Lucy Lawless, and was narrated by me, Cormac McAuliffe. The producers were Ivor Manley, Natalia Rodriguez, and Cormac McAuliffe. Sound designed by Ivor Manley, with original music by Paul Fitzpatrick. Additional sound recording by Miles Anderson, Suna Scheller and Karianna Opgard Anderson. The executive producers were Harry Watson and Colm Roach. Until the next episode, thanks for listening. <laughs>